Luke 19, 28-40, Common English Bible. After Jesus said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As Jesus came to Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he gave his disciples a task. He said, go into the village over there. When you enter it, you will find tied up there a colt who no one has ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying it? Just say, its master needs it. Those who had been sent found it exactly as he had said. As they were untying the colt, its owners came and said to them, why are you untying this colt? They replied, his master needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their clothes on the colt, and lifted Jesus onto it. As Jesus rode along, they spread their clothes on the road. As Jesus approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of his disciples began rejoicing. They praised God with loud voices, blessing all the mighty things they had seen. They said, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, scold your disciples. Tell them to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Loving and gracious God, we give thanks for your spirit that saturates our world and saturates our lives. And we pray that through that spirit, we will hear your word for us today. Amen. So today is Palm Sunday. It's one of the few Sundays uh, when like normal people know what story we're going to talk about at church. Like, we know that we're going to talk about the triumphant entry when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowd goes wild. We know that we'll have kids waving palm branches as we, as we celebrate the arrival of our long-awaited Messiah. But I wonder if we know how we're supposed to feel on Palm Sunday. It's a joyful day, but it's also in Lent which is the most somber and serious church season. And Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week, which is the saddest week of the year where we meditate on the death of Jesus. So how are we supposed to feel on Palm Sunday? Honestly, I never quite know. And it's, it's kind of my job to know, but, but I don't. Which is funny, because in our scripture, in our story, the crowd does know how to feel. In fact, Jesus is telling them how to feel. Excited. Because things are about to change. For hundreds of years, Jerusalem have been, has been ruled by foreign enemies, like the Canaanites, the Persians, the Greeks, and, and now the Romans, who rule with 
cruelty and violence. And so for, for generations, the Jewish people have, have been waiting for a Messiah who would overthrow their oppressors. And Jesus has just announced that he is that Messiah. I mean, he doesn't say it in those words, but he doesn't need to. Because the crowd knows this is, these are full of pilgrims here for Holy Week. And they know Isaiah's prophecy that, that the Messiah will be from the house of David. The crowd knows Ezekiel's prophecy that the Messiah will enter Jerusalem through the eastern gate. The crowd knows Zechariah's prophecy that the Messiah will enter that gate on a donkey to defeat the war horse. And the crowd knows who Jesus is. The crowd knows that Jesus is from the house of David. He's entering the city through the eastern gate, riding a donkey. And, and they know that, that Jesus has picked the very moment when there are half a million pilgrims in Jerusalem, enough people to actually overthrow the Roman Empire and the Roman leader, Pontius Pilate, who just happens to be parading around the city on, you guessed it, a war horse crowd knows that the Messiah has arrived. They know that God has been faithful in the past. They know God can save because they've seen it happen before, 200 years before. Judas Maccabeus defeated the Syrian army and freed the Jewish people. Then Maccabeus rode into Jerusalem as crowds waved palm branches and sang hymns. So, what does that crowd do for Jesus? They wave palm branches, they sing hymns, and shout that this man who has done great deeds of power is their savior. But one thing, Judas Maccabeus had already defeated and overthrown the occupiers before he rode into Jerusalem, and Jesus had not. But the crowd treats them the same. And that's because that's of how our brains work. When, when good things happen, our brains release a hormone called dopamine that makes us feel good and excited. And, and if a good thing has happened in the past, and we expect it to happen again, when it happens again, our brains del deliver an even bigger load of dopamine. But our brains don't actually wait for the good thing to happen. This um, research comes out of research on addiction, which indicates that we receive a rush of dopamine when we're actually anticipating what's going to happen. Like, as we take a gift from underneath the Christmas tree and are walking it back to unwrap it, our brains make us feel like we've already unwrapped it and it is this amazing gift. So when the crowd sees the Messiah finally arrive, their brains make them feel like the Romans have already been defeated. But that hasn't actually happened, and it won't. The crowd expects Jesus to be a political liberator, a, a strong and powerful king. But after this triumphant entrance, Jesus does not act anything like the king the crowd expects. 
You know the first thing that Jesus does in Luke after riding in with everyone cheering? He starts crying. In the very next verse, it's after our passage, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Then Jesus says to the crowd, your enemies will surround you, attack you, and completely crush you. Oh, uh, and they'll kill your kids. That's, that's all in there. And then after that, Jesus trashes the temple and tells people to pay their taxes. Imagine a politician <laughs> arriving to a cheering crowd and telling them, when I become your president, your homes will be destroyed and your families will kill, be killed. But first, I'm going to destroy your church and raise your taxes. Vote Jesus, 2024. <laughs> it, it'd be fair to say that Jesus is, well, it would be fair to say that the way he, he launches his political career is a little disappointing. In fact, it seems like Jesus is trying to disappoint the crowd. But I don't think that's quite what's happening. It's close, but not quite. I, I think that Jesus isn't trying to disappoint them. Jesus is trying to disillusion them. And those two things are different. There's a difference between being disillusioned and disappointed. Because being disillusioned means that we lose an illusion. Uh, Jonathan Merritt, has, he, he writes for The Atlantic, he wrote a book called Learning to Speak, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, where he's, he's got this great section on disillusionment. I want to read y'all. Disillusionment is what happens when you take a lie about the world, about yourself, about those you love, about God, and replace it with the truth. Disillusionment occurs when God shatters our fantasies, tears down our idols, dismantles our cardboard cutouts. It occurs when we discover that God does not conform to our expectations, but rather exists as a mystery beyond those expectations. Disillusionment is simply admitting the lie. And, and we all tell lies about the world, lies about ourselves, lies about God, and, and they're rarely malicious. I mean, the most dangerous lies are the ones that begin with a really good desire, like a, a desire that God would help us find a loving spouse, or God would keep us healthy so we can work and provide for our kids, or that we'll have kids. Those are beautiful desires, which makes it really easy to turn them into God's plan for our life. It's easy to believe that the God we want is the same as the God we worship. All we need to do is, you know, find some verses that support our hopes, spend a few years with a pastor who tells us what we want to hear, in this case me, and before we know it, we have a pretty narrow view of God who we expect to do exactly what we want. And that, and that will work out fine as long as life turns out like we plan. But that's rarely the case. We get sick and lose our job. We 
never meet that perfect someone or we meet that perfect someone and they leave us. Who knows what it is, but when we fix our expectations on God and those expectations aren't met, we can become disappointed and resentful and ready to quit the whole thing. We can end up like this crowd in Jerusalem that, that looks at Jesus and says, save us our king, and then five days later shouts, crucify him. I mean, the crowd is hurt because they hoped. They let themselves believe that the things they hoped for were going to come true. But then Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and all that dopamine that had flooded their brains suddenly disappeared and took with it all the hope and joy. And, and actually, those expectations that are so good and make us feel so good can actually make us feel so bad when it doesn't turn out. That, that same research about dopamine coming not when we've realized something, but when we're anticipating it, it also says that when we don't get that, our dopamine levels plummet from an all-time high to an all-time low. That's just kind of how our brains work. And that's really tricky when that same dynamic of anticipation and disillusionment or disappointment enters into our spiritual life. Unmet expectations of God can, yeah, they can lead to anger and resentment, but they can also result in something that I think is even worse, just completely missing God. We often expect God to look a particular way or act a particular way, and then that becomes the only version of God we can see. Like, Christ could be in our midst, but if our expectations aren't being met, we won't see her or him or them. I, I think this is a, another writer, Craigs Barnes, said, nothing makes it harder for us to see God than our expectations of God. And, and that's, that's why I think that, that Jesus acts like just about the worst politician I can imagine. It seems that Jesus has set up this really dramatic scene to help break people's expectations, to disillusion them, to help them see that God is so much bigger than anything they understand. And, and I think that being disillusioned might actually be the first step to finding God in a confusing and chaotic world. But it's not easy. Disillusionment comes with grief and loss. I mean, sure, we might be grieving the loss of something that wasn't actually true, but that doesn't mean the loss isn't real. Like, there's real grief in losing the illusion that your kid will be a good student, that your marriage will be happy, or that your life will be blessed as long as you have enough faith. It's not easy to let go of something that we hope for. And, and so we actually need to leave room for grief in this process. Barbara Brown Taylor describes this really nicely. 
She, she says that disillusionment is a sacred experience that cuts us down to size and reminds us of the smallness of the expansive universe. Like, these experiences are often painful because they force us to shed the lies that we've taken for truth. As she puts it, we find out what is not true and we are set free to see what is. If we dare to turn away from the God who was supposed to be in order to seek the God who is. And, and maybe that's why Jesus begins Holy Week by disillusioning the crowd. Because this week will be a week that's both too terrible and too beautiful to make sense. A week where we still struggle to understand. A week where we're invited to notice our disappointments and wonder what illusions are being shattered in the process. This is a week to ask ourselves how disillusionment might open us up to a God beyond our expectations. Because this, it is, Holy Week is a week beyond expectation. A week of grief and a week of salvation. A week when the Messiah chooses a path of peace and sacrifice. And today is a day of joy on a week where God meets us in our brokenness and our pain, and we truly know that God is with us. So let us both celebrate and mourn as we turn away from the God who was supposed to be and find the God who is now and evermore. Amen.